Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am Bill Real. Today I want to talk to you again about uh, my thoughts on grace I recently had the chance to do an, a, a presentation in the Indianapolis uh, Young Single Adult uh, Conference, um, Indianapolis, Indiana. And it was an opportunity for me to, to speak to the young adults in the church and to talk to them about grace and to share with them my view. And so today I want to go through that presentation. It's very similar to the one I did a long time ago. If you've heard that one before, I, I apologize for kind of being somewhat repetitive, but there are some new things in this uh, in this presentation that I haven't talked about before, and so I hope to do that. Let me start off by asking a question. What do we have to do here in mortality to live eternally in the presence of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ? And often, when I ask Latter-day Saints that question, their mind begins racing through lots of various behaviors that we as Latter-day Saints need to do. So to to be a good home teacher or visiting teacher, to magnify your calling, to, to do your family history work. And Latter-day Saints will tend to go on and name lots of various things that they do. And I often think that we have been kind of uh, culturally trained to look at Second Nephi 2523, which says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren, to believe in Christ, and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all we can do. And I feel like as Latter-day Saints, we've looked at that, that verse very, in a very misguided way. So what I mean by that is, on this verse, we often see this after all we can do. And we think that somehow this means that we have to do our absolute very best, our very, very best effort. And then after all we can do, then grace comes in and saves us. And we we can defend this kind of idea by the LDS Bible Dictionary, which uh, 
which also talks about expending our own best efforts. And yet in reality, none of us ever, ever do that. None of us expend our best efforts, not, you know, not even for a single day, let alone our entire life. And so I just want to kind of get away from that for a moment and begin to understand something. Robert Millett and Brad Wilcox both have spoke about this after all we can do. And they speak about it in terms of understanding the word after. That it not only means that, you know, after you do this, then this happens. But after can also be interpreted using words such as notwithstanding or nevertheless or in spite of. So in spite of all you can do, you are saved by grace. The word after can be used in multiple meanings. It doesn't have to mean it the way we as a culture have taken it. So let's begin to go down a different track. Let's begin to see this a different way. The third article of faith says that we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Now, it speaks about being saved by obedience, but let me stop there. It's not just obedience. We could be obedient to Lucifer. We could be obedient to a robber. We could be obedient to an abusive person. There's lots of people that we could be obedient to that would not bring us blessings. Rather, it's that we're saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Now, what are all the laws and ordinances? In the original Articles of Faith, the fourth article of faith, which which says that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth, the original Articles of Faith, number four, said, began with, and these are. In other words, it followed right up with number three, that we may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, and these are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance for the remission of sins, baptism by immersion, and laying on of hands for the receiving of the gift of the Holy Ghost. So it's by being, it's by being obedient to the gospel, not just being obedient. It's being obedient to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. It's a specific list of things that we are to be obedient to. Now, Ether 1227 says, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, and I'll stop there. And I asked, where does our weakness come from? I think this is a profound scripture. Ether 1227 tells us that God gave us our weakness. Let's hold on to that as we move through this. Alma 2214. And since man had fallen, he could merit, he could not merit anything of himself. In other words, while you created the debt, while you and I sin, we make mistakes, we've dug ourselves into a hole. In reality, the percentage of the debt that is ours to pay is zero. We cannot pay the debt. None of it. Again, and since man had fallen, he could merit, he could not merit anything of himself. Let me read that one more time because I keep messing it up. And since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself. Now let's play off of that again. Let's, let's get this in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Second Nephi 31. And now, my beloved brethren, after you've gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Now I'm going to pause here. Second Nephi 31, leading up to the scripture, the entire chapter is about the laws and ordinances of the gospel. It's about faith repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost. And then Nephi says, I would ask if all is done once you've gotten into this straight and narrow path. Behold, I say unto you, nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly 
upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Not holy as in H-O-L-Y, but holy as in W-H-O-L-L-Y, or completely, entirely, all the way, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. It says, Wherefore you must press forward the steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And now, behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way. And there is none other way, nor name given under heaven, whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. Not only do we have to rely completely on his merits, but we cannot merit anything of ourselves. Enter in the covenant relationship with Christ. See, this is the key to fixing it. We, as King Benjamin said, we could labor all the days of our lives in the service of God, and yet we would be unprofitable servants. So how do we become profitable? By entering a covenant relationship with Christ. You see, when we yoke with Christ, when we truly covenant and enter a relationship with him, we get to borrow his perfection. His perfection is infinite. My imperfection is finite. When you add an infinite perfection to a finite imperfection, you still get an infinite perfection. By being in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, I get to be perfected in him. It's a covenant relationship. At baptism, what do I promise? Well, Mosiah 18 tells me that I'm willing to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, willing to mourn with those that mourn, willing to stand as a witness of Christ at all times and all places and all things. When I look at the sacrament prayer, the bread and water prayer are different. The sacrament prayer says, O God, for the bread, it says, O God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son. And witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him, and keep his commandments which he has given them, that they may have his Spirit to be with them. Now I thought about this prayer, and I hope I quoted it right. I didn't have it in front of me, but I know I got the essential part correct. Heavenly Father talks about being willing to do something. And then there's a comma, and then it says, and remember him and keep his commandments which he has given them. And I was sitting here thinking, I'm looking at Mosiah 18, and I'm thinking about Mosiah using the word willing. And then as when I was serving as a bishop and having to look at the, the card of the bread prayer every week and, and finding it super important to pay particular attention to it, I found myself noticing that it also spoke of being willing. And the, and the big difference between the bread prayer and the water prayer, the water prayer doesn't have the word willing in it. It also doesn't say anything about keeping the commandments. And so I'm sitting there one day and I'm thinking about the word willing. And if I can maybe, maybe kind of draw a picture in your mind, if you could picture being at the edge of a cliff with a hundred foot golf between the next spot of earth that is at the same height. Now, could you be willing to jump that golf? Sure. You could be willing to do that. You could be willing to take that leap. Would you make it? Absolutely not. You'd fall to your death and that would be the end of you. But you could be willing to do so. And then I begin thinking about the the sacrament prayer. And I think there's a problem if we're promising to keep the commandments 
And if we keep that end of our promise, he'll keep his end of the promise, which is his spirit will be with us. And I think, how long do I go keeping the commandments? Do I go, do I go a whole day? No. Do I make it a few hours? Maybe. Sometimes I'm lucky to make it a few minutes after the sacrament before I entertain some thought that I need to repent of, before I, I think of somebody in a judgmental way that I need to repent of. And if I'm held to the standard of keeping the commandments perfectly, and then his spirit would be with me, I'll never have the Holy Ghost be with me. And I thought for a moment, I said, what if the word willing applies to keeping the commandments? What if the sacrament prayer is about our willingness to keep the commandments, not our actually keeping them? And I thought, wait a minute, what if we could find the Savior talking about this idea involving the sacrament? And then I found it one day. Third Nephi, chapter 18 Jesus has just implemented the sacrament to the Nephites. In verses 6 and 7, he blesses the bread, says, take, eat, this is my body. In verses 8 and 9, he blesses the water and says, take, drink, this is my blood. And then in verse 10, he says, and when the disciples had done this, Jesus said unto them, Blessed are ye for this thing which ye have done, for this is fulfilling my commandments. And this doth witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. In other words, you are willing to keep the commandments. This doth witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. Now let me be clear. I absolutely believe on our end, we are promising to keep the commandments. It is our responsibility to try and do so. But on the Savior's end, he is holding us accountable to our willingness to keep them. All of a sudden, we have a covenant relationship that we can uphold our end of the deal. We can try or be willing to keep the commandments. We will mess up. When we do, we repent. We roll up our sleeves and we try again. Again, willingness, pressing forward, having a desire, trying That, to me, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a lot different than we've culturally talked about this idea in the past. But you're seeing more and more of this. Now, let me talk for a minute about this covenant relationship. The scriptures often talk about two different processes, justification and sanctification. Justification is to be pardoned from sin and declared guiltless. Essentially, it is to be made clean. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy through the atonement of Christ, becoming perfected in Christ, and progressing towards becoming perfect in in eternity. Again, the gospel requires us to be both justified and sanctified, to be both cleansed and changed. Now let me give you an idea. D&C 19 says, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, it says, Therefore I command you to repent. Repent! Lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth, and by my wrath, and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Now think about that. 
If we don't repent in this life, we will have to suffer as Christ has suffered. But will that suffering make us Christ-like? No. But it will cleanse us. No unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. Each of us must stand before the judgment bar of God to be judged. How can we stand before the judgment bar of God if we are not cleansed? You see, section 19 tells us if we don't repent, this is how we'll be made clean. But some think that they'll simply wait for the other side, pass through the veil, suffer a severe flogging, and then waltz right into the celestial kingdom. But there's a problem with that. Again, we need to be both justified and sanctified, cleansed and changed. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 21. And they who are not sanctified through the law which I have given unto you, even the law of Christ, must inherit another kingdom, even that of a terrestrial kingdom or that of a celestial kingdom. For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. What is the law of the celestial kingdom? It's the law of Christ. It is the laws and ordinances of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is faith, repentance, ordinances, and enduring to the end, repenting when we fall short. That is the gospel. And if we are not changed through our covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot be celestial. Now that makes it quite interesting when I think of it that way. And there are other scriptures. Alma chapter 5 talks about the mighty change. Our souls expanding. Our hearts swelling within us. There's the whole idea, if you have felt, if you have sung the song of redeeming love, do you feel so now? It is about continually being in the covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Moroni chapter 10, verse 32 says, Come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And then it goes on to say, if you do that, His grace is sufficient, and then you shall become perfect in Christ. You see, in this life, we get to borrow, in the covenant relationship, Christ's perfection. We get to become perfected in Him. That's why He says, take my yoke upon you. It is a covenant relationship. Now, in this idea of being both justified and sanctified, isn't it interesting that in the temple interview, we are asked if we have a testimony of Jesus Christ as both Savior and Redeemer. The Savior saves us from our sin. He cleanses us. He also redeems us from the natural man or changes us. Now think about that. Justification, sanctification, Savior, Redeemer. Baptism by water, baptism by fire. Water cleanses, fire refines. The sacrament water or wine, the sacrament bread. The scriptures talk about being cleansed and purified. And these all tie into Christ's gifts of mercy and grace. Mercy is to receive that. Sorry. Mercy is to be forgiven of that which you do not deserve to be forgiven. And grace is to receive gifts which you don't deserve to have. That one fills in a void and the other one enlarges us. Once we see that the atonement of Christ performs two functions, making us clean and helping us change, we can now make an informed choice to utilize the dual power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now again, Ether 12.27, If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. You see, 
God made us with weakness. Why? So we would be humble. Why? So we would turn ourselves to Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that we cannot perfect ourselves. We cannot do it on our own. We must rely wholly upon him who is mighty to save, that they may be humble so we can turn to Christ. Why? Because his grace is sufficient for all men who humble themselves before him. For if they humble themselves before him and have faith in him, then will he make weak things become strong unto them. God gave you your weakness, and it's God who makes your weakness his strengths. But often in the church, we try to perfect ourselves. We have an addiction. We have a habit. We have a personality trait. We have some flaw in us that we're like, hey, I've got to be better than this. I'm going to start today. I am going to be better. But that's not how it works. And when we try to do it that way, we rarely, rarely ever succeed. It's only when we turn it over to Christ. Say, look, I'll make the effort. I am willing. I will try. I will repent and I will press forward. But you're the one who makes my weaknesses strengths. It is your grace that is sufficient. It is you that I must rely wholly upon. It is your merits, not mine. Helaman 335. Nevertheless, they did fast and pray oft and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ under the filling of their souls with joy and consolation. Yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. So in other words, they did fast and pray off. They wax stronger and stronger in their humility. Again, God gives us weakness that we might be humble. The more weakness we recognize about ourselves, the more likely we are to fast, to pray, to be humble, to turn to Christ, to be firmer and firmer in, his, in the faith in him. And it says, yea, even to the purifying or cleansing and the sanctification or changing of their hearts, which sanctification or change cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. It is giving our heart, giving our will, giving our weakness to God that allows him to change it. Isn't it interesting? If I were to ask who is the most righteous prophet in the Book of Mormon, many would say Nephi. Why? Because Nephi said, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. But in Second Nephi chapter 4, just after Lehi has died, here's what we get. Nephi says, Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord and showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am! Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the, tem- the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. Do we recognize that? Do we recognize that Nephi here is admitting that he gives in easily to sin? He is easily taken down by the temptations and the sins that he gives into. But then he says, he finishes up, he says, And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. Nephi places his trust in Christ. How about Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, and lest I should be exalted above measure. In other words, lest I should become prideful, lest I should boast, is what he's saying, through the abundance of the revelations, because of the, the ability to be a member of the church, because I've been blessed with inspiration, because I have, I have blessings that other people outside the church don't have, is what he's saying. And then he says, he said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. In other words, lest I should become prideful, the adversary 
has been permitted to give me some thorn in the flesh. Now, some have have talked about this being some kind of weakness that has nothing to do with sin. But I would argue that sin is absolutely on the table for this. That whatever it is, though, it keeps him from being able to be prideful and boasting. And then he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Robert Millet suggests that this was three seasons of prayer, that that this thorn in the flesh might depart from him. And then Paul says that the Savior said unto him, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, and reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong." I feel like what Paul and what Nephi were both saying is like, look, it would be easy to be depressed. It would be easy to get down because of the, the sins and the, the imperfections and the flaws that I have. It would be easy to be disappointed in myself and to just throw up the white flag and to give up. But yet he recognizes, I take pleasure in my weakness. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Why? Because the Savior's grace is sufficient for him. In Christ's strength, is our weaknesses made perfect. Now, on LDS.org, easiest way to find what I'm talking about, go into a search engine, Google or Bing, type in LDS space, grace space, trying, and enter. The first result that comes up should be the topical guide definition of grace. It says of grace, and it defines grace in like five paragraphs, but here's the last two. It says, to receive this enabling power, we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ which includes having faith in him, repenting of our sins, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and trying to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. Now hear me out. I think it would have been simple for the church to say this. To receive this enabling power, we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes having faith in him, repenting of our sins, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and following the teachings of Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. But they don't. They say, in trying to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. Think about this. The first half of this paragraph says, we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds like, oh my goodness, I have to be perfectly obedient. I must obey. But that perfect obedience includes trying to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. If we try to follow the Savior and his teachings, we are being obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes on to say the grace of God helps us every day. It strengthens us to do good works we could not do on our own. You see, in our faith, we talk about good works all the time, but they're not even your works. It's Christ's grace that strengthens you to do good works that you cannot do on your own because you're the natural man full of weaknesses. So when you do something above and beyond what your normal uh, mind tells you to do, when you go ahead and you do something good and you're like, oh, I did it. I was like Jesus today. I did this. Well, in reality, it was Christ's grace that allowed you to do it. All glory goes to him because you're relying wholly upon his merits. We could merit nothing of ourselves. It is his grace that changes us and helps us to become Christ-like. Are works necessary? Are they required? Yes, absolutely. Do they have merit towards our redemption? No. And the scriptures are clear on that. If you were to look up the word merit in reference to Christ, in reference to the atonement, you will find no scripture that speaks of you having any merit. 
all of them say that it is completely Christ's merit and that we can merit, we have no merit of ourselves. So do our works have merit towards our redemption? No. God gave us weaknesses and through his grace, he makes them strengths. We need to rely on Christ wholly and willingly follow him because we are seeking both justification and sanctification. Now, may I turn to Brad Wilcox's talk, My Grace is Sufficient. And I want to share with you about the first 15 minutes of what Brother Wilcox has to say. And then I'll be back to conclude this episode. I'm grateful to be able to be here today with my wife, Debbie, and with my two youngest who are attending BYU and several other family members who have come to be with us today. It's an honor to be invited to speak to you today. Several years ago, I received an invitation to speak at Women's Conference. And when I told my wife, she asked, well, what have they asked you to speak on? Well, I was so excited that I kind of got my words mixed up. And I said, they want me to speak about changing strengths into weaknesses. (laughs) Well, she thought about that for a minute. And then finally she looked at me and she said, they've got the right man for the job. And she's correct about that. I could give a whale of a talk on that subject, but I think we better go back to the original topic today and speak about changing weaknesses into strengths and how the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Sufficient to cover us, sufficient to transform us, and sufficient to help us as long as that transformation process takes. The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover us. A BYU student once asked if we could talk. I said, of course. How can I help you? She said, I just don't get grace. I responded, well, what is it that you don't understand? And she said, um, she says, well, I know that I have to do my best And then Jesus does the rest, but I can't even do my best. She then went on to tell me all the things that she should be doing because she's a Mormon. But she wasn't doing them. She continued, I know that I have to do my part. And then Jesus makes up the difference and fills the gap that stands between my part and perfection. But, she asks, who fills the gap that stands between where I am now and my part? She then went on to tell me all the things that she shouldn't be doing, because she's a Mormon. But she was doing them anyway. Finally, I said, Jesus doesn't make up the difference. Jesus makes all the difference. Grace is not about filling gaps. It is about filling us. Now, seeing that she was still confused, I took a piece of paper and I drew two dots, one at the top representing God and one at the bottom representing us. And then I said, go ahead, draw the line. How much is our part? How much is Christ's part? Well, she went right to the center of the page and began drawing a line. Then, considering what we'd been talking about, she went clear to the bottom, and right above the bottom dot, she drew a line. And I said, wrong. And she said, oh, 
I knew it was higher. I knew it. Why didn't I just draw it? Because I knew it. And I said, no. I said, truth is, there is no line. Jesus filled that whole space. He paid our debt in full. He didn't pay it all except for a few coins. He paid it all. It is finished. She said, oh, right. Like I don't have to do anything. I said, oh, no, you've got plenty to do. (laughs) But it is not to fill that gap. We will all be resurrected. We will all go back to God's presence. What is left to be determined by our obedience is what kind of body we plan on being resurrected with and how comfortable we plan to be in God's presence, how long we plan to stay there. Christ asks us to show faith in him, repent, make and keep covenants, receive the Holy Ghost, and endure to the end. By complying, we are not paying the demands of justice, not even the smallest part. Instead, we are showing appreciation for what Christ did by using it to live a life like his. Justice requires immediate perfection or a punishment when we fall short. Because Jesus took that punishment, he can offer us the chance for ultimate perfection, and he can help us reach that goal. He can forgive what justice never could, and he can turn to us now and make another arrangement. He can give us his own set of requirements. So what's the difference, the girl asked. I mean, whether our efforts are required by justice or whether they're required by Jesus, they're still required. True, I said, but they're required for a different purpose. Fulfilling Christ's requirements is like paying a mortgage instead of rent, making deposits in a savings account instead of paying off debt. You still have to hand it over every month, but it is for a totally different reason. Christ's grace is sufficient to transform us. Christ's arrangement with us is similar to a mom providing music lessons for her child. Mom pays the piano teacher. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yep, look at all those hands. Because mom pays the debt in full, she can turn to her child and ask for something. What is it? Everybody in a big voice. Oh, you knew that answer. Practice, practice. Now, does the child's practice pay the piano teacher? No. Well, does the child's practice repay mom for paying the piano teacher? No. Practicing is how the child shows appreciation for mom's incredible gift. It is how he takes advantage of the amazing opportunity mom is giving him to live his life at a higher level. Mom's joy is not found in getting repaid, but in seeing her gift used, seeing her child improve. And so she continues to call for practice, practice, practice. Now, if the child sees mom's requirement of practice as being too overbearing, gosh, mom, why do I need to practice? 
none of the other kids need, none of them practice, and I'm just going to be a professional baseball player anyway. <laughs> Maybe it's just because that child doesn't yet see with mom's eyes. He doesn't see how much better his life could be if he would choose to live it on a higher plane. Now, in the same way, because Jesus has paid justice, he can now turn to us and say, follow me, keep my commandments. If we see his requirements as being way too much to ask, gosh, none of the other Christians have to pay tithing. Gosh, none of the other Christians have to go on missions. They don't have to do temple work. They don't have to serve in callings. See, maybe we don't yet see through Christ's eyes. Maybe we have not yet comprehended what he is trying to make of us. Elder Bruce C. Hafen has written, The great mediator asks for our repentance, not because we must repay him in exchange for his paying our debt to justice, but because repentance initiates a developmental process that with the Savior's help leads us along the path to a saintly character. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has said, The repenting sinner must suffer for his sins. But this suffering has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. Now let's put that in terms of our analogy. The child must practice the piano. But this practice has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. I have born-again Christian friends who say to me, you Mormons are trying to earn your way to heaven. I say no. We are not earning heaven. We are learning heaven. We are preparing for it. We're practicing for it. They ask me, well, have you been saved by grace? And I say, yes, absolutely, totally, completely, thankfully, yes. And then I ask them a question that perhaps they have not fully considered. Have you been changed by grace? They are so excited about being saved that maybe they're not thinking enough about what comes next. They are so happy the debt is paid, they might not have considered why the debt existed in the first place. Latter-day Saints know not only what Jesus has saved us from, but what he has saved us for. As my friend Brett Sanders puts it, A life impacted by grace eventually begins to look like Christ's life. As my friend Omar Canals puts it, while many Christians view Christ's suffering as only a huge favor he did for us, Latter-day Saints also recognize it as a huge investment he made in us. As Moroni puts it in chapter 7, verse 48, Grace isn't just about being saved. It is about becoming like the Savior. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can live after we die, but that we can live 
more abundantly. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can be cleansed and consoled, but that we can be transformed. Scriptures make it clear that no unclean thing can dwell with God. But brothers and sisters, no unchanged thing will even want to. I know a young man who just got out of prison again. Every time two roads diverge in a yellow wood, he takes the wrong one. Every time. Now, when he was a young teenager struggling with every bad habit that a young teenage boy can have, I said to his father, we need to get him to EFY. I've worked with that program since 1985. I know the good that it can do. I said, we've got to get him to EFY. Well, his dad says, I can't afford that. I said, I can't afford it either, but you put some in and I'll put some in and then we'll go to my mom because she's a real softie. And, um, <laughs> and we finally got him to EFY. But how long do you think he lasted? Not even a day. By the end of the first day, he called his mother and he said, get me out of here. Heaven will not be heaven for those who have not chosen to be heavenly. In the past, I always had a picture in my mind of what the final judgment would be like. And it always went something like this. Jesus standing there with a clipboard. Brad standing across the room, nervously looking at Jesus. Jesus looking at his clipboard and saying, Oh, shoot. <laughs> I mean, Brad, oh, you missed it by two points. <laughs> you know, Brad begging Jesus, please look at the essay question one more time. <laughs> There's got to be two points you can squeeze out of that essay. Now, that's how I always saw it. But as I get older, and as I come to a better understanding of the plan of redemption, then the more I realize in the final judgment, it will not be the unrepentant sinner begging Jesus, let me stay, let me stay. No. He will probably be saying, get me out of here. Knowing Christ's character, I believe that if anyone is going to be begging on that occasion, it will probably be Jesus begging the unrepentant sinner, please choose to stay. Please use my atonement, not just to be cleansed, but to be changed so that you want to stay. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can go home, but that miraculously we can feel at home there. Isn't that awesome? That was Brother Brad Wilcox and his talk, His Grace is Sufficient. And I hope you felt the second witness of some of the things I was speaking of today. 
May I also wrap up by sharing with you that with this episode on mormondiscussionpodcast.org, you'll also find four or five other talks that will be helpful in your understanding of this awesome gospel principle of God's grace, of the Savior's grace, and how it is sufficient. They include Robert Millett, Grace After All We Can Do, Brother Wilcox and his daughter Wendy on their talk, Faith and Anchor to the Soul, Stephen Robinson's Believing Christ, A Practical Approach to the Atonement, and many others. Again, thank you for being with us today, for listening to this podcast. Please support the podcast by going to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and donating today. God bless you, and may the Lord warm your shoulders. Amen. In the midst of earth's first morning, as the birds tried out their wings, somewhere quiet mortal Adam slept until he heard them sing. Breath of dust and he's awaking, gazing up to heaven's home. Now with Eve this garden Eden is the place they call their own. They awoke in the garden and the leaves were wet with dew. What they knew had changed forever in the garden where they grew. In the prime of Earth's meridian, on a night so clear and deep, bowed our Savior meekly suffering, while disciples lay asleep. Abba, Father, take this cup, please. Still submissive was his plea. Paid our ransom in the garden, garden of Gethsemane. They awoke in the garden, and the leaves were wet with blood. What they knew had changed forever, Lamb of God now understood. In the tide of earthly morning, as the earthquakes rent the ground, Mary knelt in solemn sorrow, for her Lord nowhere was found. Oh, familiar was the voice then, breaking through death's awful gloom. And he stood there resurrected, Easter morning garden tomb. He awoke in the garden, and the leaves were wet with tears. What we know has changed forever, for with him we will be heirs. But a darkness closed the light's fall, and a famine swept the land. Who is right? How shall we know it? Great excitement and demand. And the time was 1820. Morning breaks in light above. 
Christ's humble prayer was answered in Palmyra's sacred grove. The world awoke in the garden and the leaves were turning green. What we know has changed forever and the powers of heaven sing. In the twilight of earth's history, at the dawning of the day, we are called to gather Israel till the line with lamp shall lay. Hush the world and still the sobbings, let the earth receive her King. For that day we have been promised, with the angels we will sing. We'll awake in the garden when the leaves are wet with rain. There on Adam on Diamond, when the Savior comes again.